0: One Hope Church. Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. A special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. Very glad that you're here. Please. Make yourself at home and let us know if you need anything at all. Um, we're just thankful for your presence today. Um, we're continuing this morning in the book of Acts. It's our second week, um, as we've just started this book last week. And so the book of Acts is about the life of the, of the early church. It's really about the beginning of the early church. Um, and we're going to see where it really all gets going um, today. At this point, um, Jesus you know, was, was on the earth. Um, he had his public ministry for three years. He went to the cross um, where he died for our sins. Um, he was put into a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He appeared um, to his disciples and to others um, in that time. And then um, he ascended back to heaven. And the The, end of the, the beginning of the book of Acts uh, goes kind of parallel with the end of the Gospel of Luke because it's Luke who writes both Luke and Acts. Um, and he's writing to Theophilus and he's trying to rem- to uh, just explain to him everything that has happened. And last week we talked about, um, our main point was that the disciples still had this view in their mind, it was really a, a nationalistic uh, mindset. Uh, their hope, since they were little kids, had been that, you know, the, the Messiah would come and that would be their king and would restore the kingdom of Israel and free them from Roman oppression, and since they were little kids, this is their dream that in their lifetime that they would see this happen. And so, even after Jesus is risen from the dead, um, they ask him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel?" And so, it's really still um, kind of uh, focused on, on you know their nation and their particular situation. But we know Jesus had an agenda that was much bigger than that. Um, all along, God has had an agenda that's been much bigger than that. And his agenda has been uh, that they would go into all the world and make disciples of you know, every people group, that they would fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham, that in Abraham's seed, every family of the earth would be blessed. And so, you know, that's really uh, the agenda that Jesus has, and he tells them, you know, go and wait Um, you know, in Jerusalem and wait, you know, for the Holy Spirit to come and for power to come upon you. Um, And then, you know, you're going to go in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and be witnesses of these things. And so at that point, you know, the disciples take that seriously and they go and they wait and they pray. And there's about 120 of them at this time gathered together um, in prayer. And, and in the end of chapter 1, I just want to summarize this for us, um, and because we're going to spend most of our time at the beginning of chapter 2 this morning, but they need to find a replacement. The, the 12, you know, you had 12 disciples. One was Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, um, and so they have to have a replacement for him. It needs to be someone that um, had been with them throughout the public ministry of Jesus that were witnesses of his, of his teachings. Um, There were witnesses of his death and of his resurrection. And so uh, it ends up being Matthias takes the place of Judas. And so that's where we arrive um, in chapter 2 for the day of Pentecost. And this is um, a very important day. We'll talk about what it meant in the um, Old Testament um, for the nation of Israel and then what it it comes into a a new meaning uh, in terms of for those who are followers of Jesus Uh, So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get right in to um, the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you for each person who's here today. We ask that you would speak uh, to each of our our minds, our hearts, our whole being, Lord, that we would know uh, your presence, that we would know your truth and your word, and that, Lord, each one of us uh, would leave here a little bit different than we walked in today, and so we ask it. Jesus, in your precious name, amen. Okay, so Pentecost was a special day. It was one of the three um, major annual feasts that the nation of Israel had. Um, You know, back from the times of of Moses and after they came out of the land of Egypt, out of their oppression, they were given, you know, kind of three basic feasts. Um, Passover, Passover was to remember that Uh, judgment had passed over them and to the Egyptians um, that had, you know, oppressed them for 400 years in slavery, and that they, you know, came out of the the land there um, into their own land, Uh, and so they were to to celebrate the Passover, and it's along with Passover that Jesus is ultimately the Passover lamb um, who dies for the sins of the world. And so there's a picture that, that God uses there. It's not a coincidence that Jesus goes to the cross at the time you know, of Passover. Uh, it's, you know, he is really the fulfillment of what that feast was to all be about. Now, Pentecost was more of a, of a, of a harvest festival to give thanks you know, to God's you know, provision of, of having you know, food to eat. And so uh, they would count... Um, 50 days from the first barley, barley um, offering, which that would happen on the first day of the Passover week. And so they would count 50 days to then, you know, Pentecost, that kind of makes sense, the beginning of that word. Um, so they, they would count 50 days, and then on that day uh, would be the beginning of the of the Pentecost you know, celebration, um, a time just to really give thanks to God for all that he had, you know, done. Um, and so... You know, Passover is a little bit more solemn, remembering what they where they had come from, um, remembering you know that God's they had been spared you know from God's judgment, that they had been freed you know from their oppression, and then Pentecost is more of a celebration of God's you know abundant um, blessings you know in their lives, and so it's fitting, as we'll see this morning, that Jesus you know, goes to the, to the cross at the time of Passover and that the church is born at the time of Pentecost. Those things are not coincidences. They are, you know, the, the plan of God to, to show, you know, what he is doing and that he has fulfilled the promises that he made, you know, from long ago. So let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Um, It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation. Living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia. Egypt and the areas around Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles And shouted to the crowd, "'Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Know what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, "'I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams.'" beginning of Acts 2, this powerful move of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so, you know, at Pentecost, again, at this great celebration that they would have, there were uh, people from many different places. There were Jewish people and converts to Judaism. So some were by birth Jewish and some were by birth Gentile. But they're from, you know, many different regions as we just read, all the different places that they were from. And so one question is like, well, wait a second, how did all these Jewish people get, you know, to all these places? And so just a, just a, a, give me a minute, just a little bit of history. I know some of you are not, you know, some of you love history, and some of you it's kind of like history, history, okay. But um, give a minute, because it's important to, to understand so we can see who these people are. But the Jewish people had been, you know, dispersed into the world uh, a couple of different ways. Um, they were different judgments back in the Old Testament, um, you know, because God had promised them, you know, if you follow my commands and are, and are faithful, then it will be well for you in the land. But if you, if you disobey, if you go against my ways and you start worshiping other gods, then, you know, there's going to be judgment. And that's the summary of, of God's message, you know, to them. Uh, and we see as you read the Old Testament, it's a story of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. It's a story of those being faithful to God, and it's a story of those being unfaithful to God, and it's also a story of leadership. As many times, you know, kings would lead the people, uh, you know, into the worship of, of other gods, and, you know, there were, you know, I mean, sometimes you think, okay, well, is it that big of a deal? Well, there were horrific practices oftentimes associated with the worship of these other gods, including, you know, the, the sacrifice of children, and so, yes, God you know, is right to say that he is the only God and he's also righteously indignant at those that instead of worshiping him would worship false gods and would sacrifice their own children, you know, would murder their own children, you know, as an offering to these false gods. And so, of course, God would, um, would want to judge them for that. Um, and his discipline is always for a purpose. His discipline was to turn, you know, their hearts back to him Um, that's his ultimate, you know, agenda in doing that. And so through these captivities, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Roman captivities, um, you end up with Jewish people being spread, you know, throughout the world in in these ancient times. But then also because of economics and because of trade, many also voluntarily went and lived in other places, you know, throughout the world. Um, it's written that during the first century, um, you know what we're reading about here in Acts, the beginning of the first century, it's estimated that a, a million Jews resided in Mesopotamia, another million in the Antioch and present-day Turkey, a million in Egypt around Alexandria, a um, hundred thousand each in Italy and North Africa, and two and a half million in Palestine. Um, a man named, Phil, a historian named Phil, Philo Judaeus. Um, who lived when you know the uh, this Book of Acts was uh, was written? He lived during this time, and in his historical writings, he lists dozens of nations where Jewish people were, had been scattered to. And so, you know, it was common not for everyone from those places, but for certain people from those places to make you know that journey to Jerusalem for these big festivals. Sometimes they come for Passover, you know, because it takes a long time to get there. It's not like today where we just you know, I'm going to go hop on a plane and in 24 hours be on the other side of the planet. Um, you know, it's a long journey, you know, to, to get from one of these places to another place. So they'd even come, you know, many times they'd come for Passover and stay for the whole time. So many of these people are, are, were present when Jesus was, you know, crucified at that time and were aware of what happened then. Now, they might not be convinced of who he was yet. But they were aware that there was at least this prophet, at least this teacher named, you know, Jesus, and had heard about, you know, some of the miracles that he had he had done. Um, and there's others, you know, have who have been from those places and have come back and resettled back in Jerusalem and taken, you know, their their residence there. We also know that Jewish people um, in these Gentile cultures were largely able to maintain their own culture. Most of the Jewish people wanted to maintain um, the continuous teachings of the law of the Old Testament, and so they would build synagogues, and they would have a, you know, their place where they would go, and they would have teaching and receive teaching um, in these in Toms. These now, what that meant is that, you know, and this is historically true, that whenever things did not go well in a particular nation, they were easy targets because they were distinct from the rest of the culture that they were in. And we see that even in, you know, that's been true in modern times. You know, Hitler blamed the Jewish people for the, for the economic woes of Germany. At the same time, in this country, Henry Ford was blaming the Jewish people for the economic woes in America. Um, he actually wrote a series of pamphlets um, that claimed that the international Jew was the world's biggest problem. He was anti-Semitic, you know, to the core. Um, so, we, you know, we can be thankful that he created the um, assembly lawn and, you know, all that. But when it came down to his heart and what he believed about people, there was some vile, you know, wickedness, you know, within. Um, and, you know, Hitler was actually a big fan of Henry Ford, just throwing that out there. I'm saying you shouldn't drive a Ford. I'm just saying <laughs> what we're saying, you know, here in terms of history. Know your history. Our history is important. You know, it's important what we believe and what we, you know, what, what ideas um, are being believed in the marketplace of ideas and what's being held on to. It's important that we understand our, our history so that we can, it also helps us not to fall into the same traps as people, you know, in the past. You know, we should learn, even as we've talked about last week, about the, the early disciples and their struggle overcoming their nationalistic tendencies, that we are prone in our nation at this time to have the same type of struggles. And you find, you know, people who are, who are Christians that are often divided, I'm using that term very loosely, but are often divided between their allegiance to Jesus and their political allegiances. Well, ultimately, you can only have one king. That's really the message of the Bible. Is ultimately, you can only have one king. And who is your king? Who is the one that you submit to and that you are subservient to in your life? You don't have one king in your life. It's either you or some king of a country or president of a nation. It's someone or something, even if it's yourself or it's Jesus. That's the ultimate message that it comes down to, but we need to be aware of these these things and these problems. But what we come to now in the, back in, in Acts two at this time of Pentecost, that you know we need to un- we need to understand also the the cultural differences and expectations. You know, at this time, many Jewish people would have spoken at least two languages and often multiple languages. You know, and. And we're, we're kind of a rare culture where it's common for people to only speak one language. That's, you know, that's um, not exactly normal in our world today, but to us it's normal. You know, if somebody can, you know, speak more than one language, we're like, wow, that's, that's awesome. You know, and that's you know, really cool that you can do that, but most people can't do that. Um, but in this time, the average Jewish person would have known their everyday Hebrew um, you know, which is Aramaic. So they would have known Aramaic. They would have known the Greek language, which was the dominant language in the world. It was like English is. So they would have known the Greek language. And then if they were grew up in one of these other places, they would have known at least one other local language. So the, the average you know, Hebrew person that's an international Hebrew person probably knew three languages. Now, in some places, the... Um, they were called the Hellenistic Jewish people. They adopted more the Greek way and cultures, and they, they dropped the Hebrew and just stuck with you know, the Greek. And, and you find that today sometimes, too. You know, people will move to a language and their children, they won't pass on the language to their children. They want their children just to know the language of the land you know, that they're living in. And so there were a segment of people that had that mentality. And that's why the Old Testament scripture, scriptures were translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, known as the Septuagint, um, and so that's why that came. That's how that came about to be because they needed, and we'll see this happen later in the Book of Acts too. That there are some who who only spoke some Jewish people only spoke Greek. They didn't speak the Hebrew, and so they needed that in order to have the Word of God in their their own language. So that's the scene here: is you have these people who. Speak all these different languages. Now, the Galileans, which are the first disciples of Jesus, most of them were from Galilee, and so they would have spoken their Aramaic, and they probably also spoken Greek. So they were bilingual, but they didn't know, you know, all the different languages from these other parts um, of of the planet that were there in Jerusalem at this time for this Pentecost celebration. So remember this: it's Jesus who gave his mission to the disciples to be his witnesses in all places, beginning in Jerusalem. And it's the Holy Spirit who came upon the first disciples in great power in order to begin the fulfillment of his mission. So what's the lesson there? Basically, the lesson is if God gives his people something to do, he's also going to give them the means by which to do it. God's going to give his people something to do. He's going to give them the means by which to do it. God's not going to say, I want you to do this and not give you the power and ability and the resources that are necessary in order to do it. Now, his way may be different than our way. You know, we might have come here and started, you know, language schools. (laughs) You know, and it's going to be a couple decade long process to learn how to do this. In this time, in this setting, God doesn't do that. He's going to do something, you know, radical because this mission has to have legs and has to go and go out into all the world. So we see, you know, back in verse 1, just setting that scene, the, the disciples are all together in one place. So we, we know that that number is around 120 people. Um, the first disciples, Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, the other um, leading women and other men um, who were followers of Jesus, um, more than just the, the twelve. And then in verse 2 and 3 it says, but suddenly, you know, they had been prepared through prayer, but then suddenly there was a sound, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. There's a a wind, a spirit, a breath that is at play there. And it reminds us back to Genesis chapter 2 when God breathed life into Adam. That here God is going to breathe life into the beginning of, of this new thing called the church. That that God's, it's God who starts it. It's God who initiates it and breathes life into it. And then it says flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. And that reminds us back to the Old Testament. Again, the the Hebrews coming out of their 400 years of oppression in Egypt. And it says that there was, um, that, that God's presence was in the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire pillar of fire by night, and it led them as they, as they went. But now God's presence is coming and resting on them. And so these are real, you know, physical events, but the purpose was to empower them to a greater spiritual reality. What's being also communicated there is that, you know, God doesn't need a temple to live in. But God comes and and lives and resides, you know, with his people and within his people. Um, And and last week we made a, we wanted to make a distinction, it's important to make this distinction when it comes to the Spirit of God. What's normal when a person believes in Jesus is they receive the Spirit of God as a guarantee, as a seal, you know, on them, as a promise that they are secure and safe in God's family and their eternity is secure in God's hands, not their hands, but God's hands. So and, and that is different, though, that is separate from what we see throughout the scriptures about a filling of the Holy Spirit. And so what's really being emphasized here is about the Spirit coming upon them in power and being empowered to do particular things and to be, to, um, be prepared for, for particular um, situations and events. And we should seek, I think we see in the scripture, we should seek, um, to be filled with the Spirit of God? You know, it's like, yes, you may be a believer, you may have been a believer for a long time, but are you seeking to be filled with the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of you know God is working through you and empowering your work for him? You know, we're not just going along. Um, and, and we see the preparation that the disciples had here was prayer. They had spent a long time together in prayer. And I think that the reality is whenever you find God's people gathering together to pray a lot, God moves and works in response to that. And so if we want, you know, sometimes we say, well, we want God to do more in our church, we want God to do more mm-hmm. among us. And I think the question back to us is are you willing to pray for it? Are you willing to take the time and to sacrifice and to gather together to pray? Or are you all just too busy for that? We've got too many other things going on. So we can do a lot of other stuff. We don't really have the time for that. And I think that's the challenge. As I read this passage, as I read the passages, just reading all of Acts 1 and 2 and go for, for us and for our church, what is the big t- takeaway? The big takeaway is if we want to see God move in power, we've got to pray more. And we have seen God move, but even historically in the life of our church, when we've seen more spiritual things happen, it's been associated with more prayer. So I'm going to say this very clearly to myself and to each one of us and to us collectively, that we can say all that we want to about wanting to see God do X, Y, and Z in our church. But if there isn't prayer, it's just talk. It's just talk. If there isn't a lot of prayer, it's just talk. I'm just talking. You're just talking. We're all just talking. If there isn't actual time on our knees before holy God, asking Him to move and work, because otherwise we're the ones then that are doing it all. And all that does is build up people's pride. Look at what we did. Look at what we accomplished. When you look at Acts 1 and 2, how can the disciples take any credit for what happens? Because it's God who moves among them in power and gives them the ability to speak in these different languages. It's God who empowers the message. It's God who does all the work. And they're the vessels of it, but they're the prepared vessels because they've been prepared through prayer. And the, the sad thing is that for most of us, that's not new information. Like, we know this to be true. Yet, it's so easy to get so busy with other things. And where prayer is just, well, if I got time for that, or it's quick. You know, but actually, like, to take the time to settle down in the presence of God and pray. It is work. It is work to do that. It takes discipline. It takes discipline. And the reality is, you know, we have to ask God to move in our hearts to change our So we want to do that. And so we want to have that sort of discipline. But, you know, it's nothing. You can fake a lot of things in, your, in, our, in our lives. We can fake a lot of things. In the church, you can fake a lot of things. But, you, you, you know, you really can't fake Discipline you can't take you can't fake the time spent in prayer, and a true move of God is a real move of God you know I mean there's things that sometimes look like it, but we'll get into that as well, just a little bit here, but we want to move on so there it says verse four, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking. Um, in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave, this, gave them this ability, your version may read, speak in tongues. Um, but in the context, I think this is an accurate translation, using New Living Translation this morning, but I think that's an accurate translation because in the context, we clearly see that these were other languages, the local native languages of the people you know, from these from these areas. Um, it's real real languages. Uh, and so... That's uh, that's powerful, and, and there's going to be a tremendous advantage, you know, just kind of as we look at the, the book of Acts, that eventually persecution is going to come, and many of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are going to get scattered. Many of them are going to go back to these local places to where they have connections, where they used to live, or where they just came, that they were visiting, and now they stayed for a while because of everything that happened here that has changed their lives, and they've learned from the apostles. Um, but when they go back, that's actually going to it's just a a huge advantage because now you have all these different people who speak all these different languages able to go back and to share what happened what they witnessed um, and that's that's powerful so God gives them the ability to speak um, speak these languages, and you know there's um there's some accusation that comes across there, and it's peter that's going to be the one to address in verse fourteen. You know, Peter's the one that addresses the accusation that's given in verse 13, saying, others mock saying they are, they are filled with new wine, or, you know, they're drunk. And, you know, it's kind of, it, there's a couple things I want us to grab here, but one is just that, that Peter is the one who ends up giving this message. And that's really powerful, because if you remember, as, you know, from our study through Luke and in the other Gospels, you know, what did, what did Peter do the night that Jesus was betrayed, and that his trial began, what did, what did Peter do? Well, he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. He totally denied his Savior, the one that he said, you know, Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king. Earlier he had made that confession, but under pressure and under the threat of his, you know, what he thought might happen to him, even though he had said, Jesus, I'd be willing to go with you to, to death, to the, you know, I'd be willing to die with you, In that moment of pressure, he denies Jesus fully and utterly. You're not going to find a stronger denial. I mean, he curses his denial. I mean, he curses in his denial. And yet, Jesus restored him. And then is going to use him to be the one who gives a message. And so sometimes people will say, you know, that if a follower of Jesus will say, "You know, I, I failed my Lord. I, I didn't. There was a test, and I failed it. I didn't pass it. I failed it." And they will think that God cannot use their life now; that it's they've ruined anything good God could do with their life moving forward. And I, I would just want us to remind us this morning that the life of Peter and Jesus' interaction with Peter says no says that's not true, that that's a lie from the pit of hell, and that you can be restored and useful in God's work. With Peter, though, there, was, you know, there is an obvious, there was confession in his life. There was an asking of forgiveness. There was a restore process you know, that happened. You know, and that part is necessary, because I think there's times when people want, yeah, I sinned, but it's all good. And it's like, whoa, 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 time out. We have to have the restoration process first. We have to have the going to God and, and, and asking for you know, forgiveness and being reconciled. But we see that Jesus' heart and Jesus pursues Peter and seeks his reconciliation. And God always seeks the re- reconciliation of, of his children, of those who are his. He seeks when they fall to reconcile. And so we can give thanks to God this morning because many of us like Peter have fallen straight on our faces in the midst of pressure, in the midst of adversity. Um, but God is gracious. And we see, so Peter uses this opportunity and the Lord empowers him and he speaks and he says, you know, these people aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Like, come on, you know, let, let, let's get with reality. And, and, and the ones that are here in the word of God in their own language are going to testify that that's not. But there's others, you know, they want to deny what God is doing. Um, you know, and they, and maybe to a few of them it sounded like noise. Um, if I said this morning, "Iwan San Akin Totiko Ika Momakitis," you might be like, "What? What are you talking about? You drunk?" <laughs> you know, but that's nawak. Uh, you know, the, where we work in the mountains in Mexico. That's, Navic, that's a Nauk language, and I probably just butchered the fool out of that. I'm 99% sure I did. But um, I don't speak it, and um, right now God has not given me the ability to speak that uh, this morning. But, you know, so you can see how there might be some, but when they're hearing and seeing the testimony, and these people are saying... We hear the word of God in our own languages, and they know these people from their different places. There's also a willful and deliberate lack of faith. There's a willful and deliberate lack of faith. And I run into this even last night. Claire and I were, were out on a little date and ended up into a conversation and you encounter know, with some folks um, who were teaching some things very different from what the scripture teaches and it was obvious at a certain point, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was amazing just almost the, the truthfulness that was spoken in answering the question, if you saw from the truth of God's word that this was different than what you were teaching and what you were saying, would you want to know that? Would you believe, want to believe that? And the answer was no. The answer was just no. No you know, I wouldn't want to know. And it was shocking in a lot of ways. Um, And so that's part of the reality that while many people are going to receive this message, there's a segment that they don't want to know the truth. And even the truth being clearly known to them, there's a denial of it because it's going to cost too much. It's going to change too much in their lives going to t- change too much of their traditions and their their current power structure. And they, they like how their life is now. And so, why change it? So, why change it? Well, we would say, well, when you have the power of God and you have the true message of God, well, anything is worth paying the cost to know that. And so, Peter states that what they saw was you know partial fulfillment of the prophecy given by Joel, that in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit even among my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So this part of the prophecy is fulfilled at Pentecost throughout the early church, and I believe um, even in the church today. And I would, I would argue this morning that wherever there needs to be the witness of Jesus in a nation, among an ethnic group, or a community, um, particularly a first witness of Jesus, that it's often going to be accompanied by you know, some miraculous events um, that we see here in the book of, of Acts. I By no, mean, no uh, means I'm a cessationist. Uh, and so when I hear stories about miracles and dreams and visions, from my theologically conservative friends, who live in places like Iraq and Malaysia and Niger, I'm not surprised by those things. You know, when my I have a good friend, my best friend is is uh, serving God in a, a, a closed country, and it's a very difficult place. And he's there with you know with his his wife, and they're there with having their language lesson, which is kind of fitting for this morning. They're having this language lesson. And their language teacher says, she says, you know, I had this dream, and she describes the dream, and she's perplexed by it, and he runs and grabs his Bible and says, let me just show you that dream you just had. The dream that you had last night before coming today to our house, that dream is here in the Gospels, not the dream, but the story Is here in the Gospels. And they're all shocked. And he's shocked because he was taught that stuff doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) That that was back here at the very beginning in the book of Acts, and it doesn't happen anymore, was what he was taught, you know, all growing up and in you know, theology school and everything. So he's about as shocked as she is. But when you hear these sort of things, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised by that because we see, even in this case, that the speaking of tongues, the speaking of these different languages, it wasn't really necessary in this context to give the message of the gospel. Pretty much everybody there speaks Greek. And Peter, you know, he's going to end up giving this message. We believe he gives this message in Greek. You know, so he can just speak it in Greek and have everybody understand the actual words that he's saying. But 1 Corinthians 14, says, So you see then that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. And so it was given to them, not because it was necessary to communicate the actual words of the message, but it was necessary to convince the people of the truth of the gospel. That's why it was necessary, to convince them of the truth of it. It wasn't actually necessary in this context for communication. But it was necessary in this context for evidence, for proof that what they were saying was true. And we see in the book of Acts, we see three different times of speaking of tongues or speaking of language. It happens on three occasions. Each time it's a sign of witness. In Acts chapter 2, we have it here, predominantly Jewish people from various parts of the world, some Gentile converts. In Acts chapter 10, um, it's to all Gentile people um, in Cornelius's house, and in Acts 19, where Paul's in Ephesus, 12 men who were believers in God but had never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit um, are given the gift of speaking in tongues. And so in each case, it's given um, as a witness or as a fuller understanding of what God, you know, has, has done. In First Corinthians, it teaches us in the church that we are not to forbid to speak in tongues, but things should be done in an orderly fashion, that there must be an interpreter, And if there's no interpreter, the one speaking in tongues only edifies himself or herself and doesn't edify the whole church. Uh, It's most beneficial in the church if someone is there who speaks a different language and needs proof of the message of God's word. Uh, That's really the teaching of it in the scripture. So it's displayed, it's a display of God's power. And and then, really, what we see here in Acts 2 It's an act of grace. It's God's grace. You know, God is gracious and He wants people to have opportunity to know and to see the truth of who He is and of his, of his power. So it's to convince them of the message of the new covenant between God and men that is mediated through Jesus Christ. So we've got to have some balance in all this because it's also naive to say that God, um, you know, it's, it's naive. On, we have two parts where we can be naive. One is to say, you know, God doesn't do this sort of thing anymore. And so anything like that is false. And it's also naive to say that anything that looks like that is true. Both of those, I think, are naive from a scriptural and experiential point of view. Um, 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. Test the Spirit's. You know, not everything you hear, not everything you see, has its origin in, in God, because Satan has power as well, and his demons they have power as well. So I'll give just real quick five signs that someone is faking their prophetic claims or miracles. Just got five quick things. One is that what is said is very general; it's not specific. This has happened here at University of Georgia before on campus where, you know, to, you know, crowds of large numbers of people, large numbers of college students, there's a mat here, there's a mat struggling with alcohol. I mean, I don't sound specific, but there are a lot of mats and you're at a college campus, I'm pretty sure one of them is struggling with the bottle a little bit. You know, or, or, um. There's an there's an Emily, there's an Emily, and I think God has called you to work with children in some capacity. There's an Emily. You're not, I mean, well, there's a lot of Emilys in the room. I mean, come on, or God's called somebody. You know, God's called somebody here to be a missionary. Well, you got 500 people. Well, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> you know, I mean, I would hope so. So that can happen. Um, when a person gives a prophecy and then the time changes. You know, Jesus is coming back on this date. Oh, that date passes. Whoops. Well, oh, sorry, I read this little thing wrong. we got to adjust the calculation seven more years. Like, come on. I mean, just, you can write all that stuff. That's false, that's a false prophet. That's false teaching, false prophet. If a person's greedy, if they demand to know how much each of their followers gives, and their income, and all of that stuff, that's Going to be a false prophet. That's going to be a cult, and pretty much guarantee you that every time. Um, if a person is looking to exploit sexual opportunities, that's a cult. That's a false prophet. That's common. Greed and sexual sin go hand in hand with false prophets. Hand in hand. And you know there are abuses, you know, on that level. There's a cult, very popular cult, and it's the saddest thing because the cult is called. La Luz del Mundo, which means the light of the world. And it's very popular in Mexico and other parts of Latin America. But there's systemic abuse, sexual abuse of children. And there's systemic financial abuse of the poor. And yet people still sign up for it. And it's incredibly sad because laws are very, very powerful. And when they're told that if they're not in this, if they don't do this, and if they don't obey... What the leaders say that they're going to go to hell, well, that has a very powerful hold on people. Um, And if a person points more to themselves than they do to Jesus, that person is usually a false prophet. So those are kind of five things that you can look at whenever you're like, hey, is this real? Is this not real? Well, you can look to those things. Other part of the prophecy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke, the sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that glorious and that great and glorious day of the Lord. Now you'll notice here, Peter does not put a a timeline on that, on those words. On those words. He knows better than that because Jesus already said in Acts 1-7 about, you know, when it's all going to be done, said and done. He says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they are not for you to know. So Peter knows, Peter knows better than to try to, you know, talk about um, the culmination of all things. And that, but he ends with this, and this is hugely important for us this morning, verse 21, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is his, you know, he's going to continue this message, the sermon that he gives next week, but here he gives that first great line of hope in his sermon. First great line of hope. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, if we go back to Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, and the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart, and that message is the very message of, about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hugely powerful Hugely important this morning. This morning, if you are a person who you know intellectually about God, you know, intellectually, you know, Jesus, there's a Jesus Christ who who is the Son of God who died on the cross, you know, for our sins and who rose from the dead, and you know those things intellectually in your mind, that you agree with those statements, you have to understand that there's another step that's there. And ultimately, it comes down to that belief you know, in your heart. And certainly, if there's a belief in your, in your heart, there's not going to be a problem confessing it. If it's a true belief in the heart, there's not going to be a problem confessing that with the mouth of, you know, Jesus is my Savior and Jesus is my King. Because the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and just in how that's given, that is a very personal and that is a very intimate thing. It doesn't say whoever calls on the name of the Lord for someone else, that those people... Or whatever collective group, you know, one like you have a representative or a family representative. But it says, you know, whoever calls on the Lord or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a very personal call. And, and you know, one thing that, you know, that I'm always trying to be mindful of in, in teaching the scriptures is to keep in mind that we have a very individualistic you know, culture, and, and that can get overridden, you know, that, that can dominate things to everything as it's about you and God, and you, you know, you forget about the fact that you need to be part of a community of faith. But there can be a swing to the other side that's just kind of like you generally associate with this group of people and you're good. But no, you know, your faith is very personal everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And certainly we see, even we'll see this in the book of Acts, but you also see in the Old Testament where whole communities come to the Lord at once and fall on their faces before him and say, God, forgive us, help us. But, that's also, but we have to acknowledge in that situation is that every single individual, that their heart before the Lord has to, you know, have that themselves. Can't have it just on the person that's there next to them. You know, it has to be your faith personally, individually. It has to be my faith personally, individually. Before the God and before God, and so the question for you this morning is not in a just in a time of. Um, I mean, it's fine if it's in a time of crisis, but more than just to get you out of the crisis, because you know sometimes people, you know, in a crisis situation, will say, "God, help me." And that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, certainly we'd, want, we'd advocate that. What happens, though, when that moment of crisis is gone? So the, the question, really, I think that's being asked here is when it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord be saved, that, that what we're being pressed to is there, been, is there a point in your life where you actually surrender your life, not an aspect of your life, not part of who you are, but all of yourself to the Lord? And call on him and say, Lord, save me. You know, acknowledging I need to be saved. I can't save myself. But I need to be saved. And acknowledging, yes, I need a Savior. I'm a man in need of a Savior. I'm a woman in need of a Savior. I'm a kid in need of a Savior. I'm a grandparent in need of a Savior. That I need a Savior. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, and with that, it's important that we are talking about the same Lord, talking about the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about the same Jesus, the Son of God that was sent and who died on the cross you know, for our sins. And so in that discussion you know, last night uh, about Jesus, one of the questions you know, asked was, do you believe that Jesus and Satan were brothers? Because that's what this particular group of people you know, believes. And the answer to that is yes. Like, yes, of course. Well, that's a different Jesus. That's a different Jesus with a different origin. You know, even in how he came to be, it's a different Jesus in what he did and what his purpose is and all of these things. It's, it's just utterly a different Jesus. We have to make sure we're actually talking about the same Jesus. Talking about Jesus of the scriptures who came and died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead. That is fully God and fully man. We've got to be talking about the same Jesus. Because a lot of times, you know, we're not talking about the same Jesus. We're talking about a prophet Jesus, just a prophet Jesus, or just a teacher Jesus. We're not talking about the mediator Jesus who's fully God and fully man. And so it's, that's just an encouragement in some of those conversations you have. Hey, just want to make sure we're we talking about the same Jesus? How do you define him? For those of us, you know, who believe in Jesus already, um, that the birth of the church at Pentecost should set a powerful precedent for the church today and that we should expect God to work in mighty power in and through his church. We should expect God's work. We have to, again, go back to prayer to be prepared to be a part of that work and to be a vessel for that work. In Ephesians three twenty twenty one, and 21, it says, Now all glory to God, who is able to do through his mighty power work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that verse gives me great, those verses give me great hope because through all generations, well, that's this generation, the generations even that are represented in this room today, at least three. That in, But in every generation that, that Jesus would be glorified and that he would, that God would do through his mighty power at work in us to accomplish more than we might ask or think, that God's power is available to us today. And I I just want to free us from that danger of reading the book of Acts and saying, well, that was nice history, and it's good to understand where we came from, but not to identify with it in such a way as that we say, yes, Lord, we expect you to work. We're not putting boundaries and boxes and limitations on exactly what that's going to look like and it doesn't have to look like it did in acts 2 but we do expect god that you will work in your mighty power in us and through us is that your expectation is that your expectation this morning that you expect in your life and in the life of our church god will work in his mighty power in us and through us and if the answer to that is no, then we have, like a, we have a heart issue and we have a lack of faith issue that we have to you know, acknowledge, be honest with, confess, be real with the Lord about, and ask him to change our hearts on that. Because the, tr- the truth of the matter is that I'm, you know, I like to call myself a realist. Sometimes i more of a pessimist. Um, but I have to remind myself that our God is a God of hope. And he's a God of power. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, when I see his mighty power and his mighty work in Acts chapter 2, shouldn't be surprised. When I see his mighty power and work in Iraq, I shouldn't be surprised. When I see it in Malaysia, I shouldn't be surprised. When I see it, in the mountains of Mexico, I shouldn't be surprised. When I see it in Athens, Georgia, God forgive me, but sometimes I'm surprised. Because it's so easy sometimes to think, then and not now, and there and not, but not here. But that just... That's a lie from the pit of hell, and it's a trap of the enemy. And it limits our lack of faith, limits what God do in our community. And it's sinful. It's sinful in my heart when I have that lack of faith, that I confess that to you this morning, that many times when I'm honest before the Lord, say, if you do something here, I'm surprised, Lord. When, somebody, when one person comes to faith, it's like this shock that somebody here would believe in Jesus and surrender their life to him and say, it's not my life anymore, but Jesus is my king. Am I shocked when that happens? When I'm in a prison in Mexico and I'm sitting there with murderers and thieves and a man gets on his face and says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I'm not shocked. I'm thankful, but I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked because I know who my God is. And when that happens here in Athens, Georgia, I'm surprised because I forget who my God is. Well, I don't have a different God in the mountains of Mexico than I do in the city of Athens, Georgia. But many times I live my day-to-day life like I have a different God here. And when you say it's a different spiritual environment and all that, that's bullcrap. Because people here need Jesus. And the scripture tells us, but how will they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And that is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I challenge us, to go and be those messengers this week and to take the good news with us, expecting God to move into work. But the greater challenge is that we can expect nothing and we should expect nothing if we don't take the time to pray. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For your truth, for your conviction. Lord, we pray, we pray this morning, even this morning, Lord, that even somebody here would say, Lord, I surrender to you. For the first time in their lives, they would be on their knees before you and say, Lord, I go beyond just an intellectual agreement. But in the deepest core of who I am, I surrender. And I believe you, Jesus. Please be my Savior. Please be my King. Lord, there be but one, at least one not yet follower of Jesus this morning that would say, Lord, save me. Please save me. Lord, there be at least one of us who already follow you, Lord, that say, Lord, yes, I've surrendered, but there's more to surrender. Yes, my eternity is secure in your hands. I believe that, Lord. But, Lord, my life, I've been distracted. I need more faith. I haven't prayed enough. Lord, help us. Lord, help me. Lord, we believe, and with man in Acts, I mean, sorry, man in Gospels, Lord, we say... Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my doubts. Help my fears. Forgive me, Lord, when I put you in a box and when I think you're small in this city. Forgive me when I'm surprised when you do something here, Lord. Forgive my unbelief. As we take that bread and that cup, and remember you Jesus and remember that you came and you died on the cross for our sins and you rose from the dead. Oh Jesus, help us to give thanks with full hearts and to hold nothing back from you. And Lord, when we want to hold on so tightly and we don't want to give it all to you and we don't want to surrender everything and we don't want to be fully engaged because we're afraid Lord I've or we're prideful, or we're stubborn, would I pray that you would do whatever it takes in our lives to break us from that, to break us from those bonds, so we could be free in